Well, this week we're talking about the famous chapter, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel chapter 5. So uh, you all know that Napoleon Bonaparte uh, was known as one of the greatest battlefield generals of history. Uh, After taking power uh, in 1799, he quickly won a bunch of battles uh, in, uh, in Europe, and that gave him control over most of Europe. But Napoleon turned out to be a fool. His appetite for conquest was insatiable. His ego was enormous, uh, and his prior victories caused him to overestimate his own abilities and underestimate uh, the abilities of his enemies. So with Europe in his hands and with no more enemies to conquer, uh, he, in June of 1812, uh, turned his sights east and and raised a massive army of 450,000 troops, uh, and he invaded Russia. Now, Russia had no more than 200,000 troops, so uh, he thought this is an easy win, right? But he did not take into account the fact that the Russians knew how to fight on their own turf. Uh, Napoleon foolishly expected the Russians to meet him head-on in battle, to fight on the battlefield like his previous enemies had. Uh, But instead, they continued to retreat deeper eastward uh, into Russia, forcing the French army to chase them deep into Russia. And in case you don't know, Russia is freezing in the winter, and you don't want to fight land battles in Russia in January. Uh, So what Napoleon did was uh, continue to to go east, and and as he went east, he found that uh, the Russians, uh, they were abandoning their city. So uh, that city right in the middle there is called Vinma. Uh, They abandoned that without a fight. They continued to go eastward. They they abandoned a city called Vitebsk and then Smolensk, uh, burning them to the ground so that Napoleon couldn't use the resources that were in those cities uh, to to, uh, further supply his armies. And so still, the Russians ran all the way to Moscow, and even they gave up Moscow after a day's fight. But still, before they gave it to Napoleon, they burnt that to the ground too. And so Napoleon had no resources. Uh, Within six weeks, Napoleon lost uh, half of his army to extreme cold, starving, and, and desertion. And still the Russians continue to retreat east. Uh, And as Moscow was sitting in Napoleon's hands, now Napoleon is thinking, well, surely they're going to come to me with terms of a peace treaty. And they never did. So Napoleon sat there for five weeks thinking, surely today is the day they will come to me with peace terms. And every day it got a little colder and their soldiers got a little hungrier. And finally, Napoleon realized his fatal flaw and said, I got to get out of here before it's way too late. And so he and his armies beat it back to Paris, narrowly escaping uh, death of his entire army, uh, but he lost his reputation for invincibility. Well, the dictionary definition of a fool is someone who acts unwisely, someone who lacks proper judgment or prudence. And by that definition, Napoleon was a fool for relying solely on the size of his army compared to Russia, the Russian army, uh, without taking into account all the other factors that you have to take into account uh, when when you're going to fight a war. So Napoleon was a fool by history standards. Another one of history's great fools was the Babylonian king Belshazzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The year is now 539 BC, and the Persian army was on the move. They had defeated almost the entire Babylonian empire with only the city of Babylon left to conquer. And so enemy soldiers are camped outside the city gates of Babylon, 
And Belshazzar knew that they were there, and yet foolishly and arrogantly he thought the city of Babylon was safe because of its, uh, what he thought were impregnable walls of defense. <clears throat> Last week, I told you about the height of these walls and the width of these walls and how they surrounded the entire city. And so uh, Belshazzar, rather than mustering troops to defend the city, uh, he relied on its walls for protection. And instead of drawing up battle plans, uh, Belshazzar threw a blasphemous and sacrilegious feast uh, as these armies are camped outside. So Belshazzar's pride was misplaced uh, in the security of his walls, uh, and that was his undoing, that and the fact that it was time, God's time, for judgment on Babylon. So I want us to reorient ourselves to the book of Daniel a little bit, because uh, as I told you, Daniel is not necessarily written in chronological order, uh, and so it does some bouncing around after the first four chapters. So this is the list of the chapters, chronologically speaking. We've been through chapters 1 through 3, 605 to 602. Uh, we've been through chapter 4, uh, which happened about 570. Now we're into chapter 5, which happens even after chapters 7 and 8, and we're in 539 BC. So this is about 21 years after the events we read about last week, uh, the, uh, the, the dream, the, the dream of the tree that got cut down. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, so now we're several years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, and as we come to Daniel chapter 5, uh, in the bottom right corner you'll see there on that slide that Belshazzar is now on the throne. Uh, Belshazzar came to power uh, after several kings before him. Nebuchadnezzar had another son, Evil Merodach. He reigned for two years. Uh, then his daughter married a guy by the name of Neraglisser, and he, married for, uh, he reigned for six years. Then his son reigned for a year. Uh, then Nabonidus reigned for about uh, 25 years or so. And then his son Belshazzar reigned uh, co-regent, they call it. He was co-king with his father Nabonidus for a bit of time. Uh, by the way, Belshazzar and Nabonidus, their identity is confirmed uh, in historical records uh, from uh, archaeology. Uh, I will talk later about this uh, cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder, which has their names written on it that was found uh, written at the time of these events. So these are actual historical figures. Uh, we don't have to worry about the Bible making up stories. So again, the year is 539. This is a very consequential year in world history, and especially for Babylon and for Medo-Persia. Now, remember that God has promised judgment, right? Uh, remember in the book of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk complains to the Lord. Uh, he says to, to, to uh, the Lord in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, uh, Lord, how long are you going to let the, these Israelites ignore your law, live immorally, uh, and just generally not pay attention to what you want? And in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous, impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Before your eyes, I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion. So in one verse... God answers Habakkuk, uh, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Habakkuk's like, what? The Babylonians are the most wicked people on earth. You're going to use them to judge us? And then in the same verse, God says, yes, but I will then judge the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk is stunned, uh, and yet he accepts God's message at the end of the book. Uh, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah also predicts the coming judgment of the Babylonians. <clears throat> in verse 51, 24, 
God said, before your eyes, I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. And in Jeremiah 50, verses 1 through 3, God said, This is the word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured. Bel will be put to shame. Marduk filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land and no one will live in it. Both people and animals will flee away. So here we are, we're on the precipice of the fulfillment of these prophecies that Habakkuk and Jeremiah uh, prophesied. So God fulfilled these prophecies against Babylon. Judgment Day was October 12th, 539 BC, and the occasion for God's judgment was this party, this feast that Belshazzar threw. Uh, and so what we'll see today is that there is a limit to God's patience, right? God is patient and he's forbearing, but there is a limit to God's patience. Uh, God does not suffer fools forever, and he certainly will not share his glory with pagan gods. And furthermore, everyone will face God's judgment. And so uh, you and I better not make the same prideful mistakes that Belshazzar made uh, by relying on anything other than the one true God to save us. Uh, Napoleon relied on his armies, Belshazzar his walls. We need to remember that the only one who can save us from the wrath of God that we deserve on Judgment Day is Jesus Christ. So let's read about this party, and then we'll talk about it. Belshazzar's bash. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them, and as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone." So on the evening of October 12, 539 BC, King Belshazzar did what many of the East, uh, ancient Near Eastern kings did. Remember the party that, uh, that the king threw in the book of Esther, right? That lasted six months for all of his, his uh, friends, his nobles. Uh, so what they're trying to do is, is to, to display a massive wealth and generosity and gain the favor of the people. And imagine just the, the resources that would be required to wine and dine a thousand nobles. And then verses two and three say that the wives and the concubines were also there. Uh, so this is quite a large party. Um, uh, just historically speaking, uh, there are a couple of uh, historians, uh, Xenophon and Herodotus, who also confirm that this party actually happened. And another historical source uh, is this called the Nabonidus Chronicle. Uh, which is now on display at the British Museum uh, in London. It, it records some of Nabonidus's uh, exploits, beginning in 556 BC. It's like a historical chronicle written in real time as the events were happening uh, during Nabonidus's reign. And Nabonidus confirms that Persia had conquered all of Babylon and Belshazzar's father uh, on, in, in a battle called the Battle of Opus. 
Now, the Battle of Opus happened just 50 miles north of Babylon. So you see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. He said, I will bring an army from the north, and which is exactly where this army came from, 50 miles from Babylon itself. Persia had defeated all the Babylonian Empire except for the city. So if you're Belshazzar and you have the Persian army camped outside the wall and you know that all of Babylon is lost except for the city itself, why would you throw a massive feast like this? Why would you do such a thing? Well, some scholars suggest that he was doing it uh, to encourage the people and to boost morale. I don't know how that would have boosted morale, uh, but that's one way to look at it. Or perhaps after Nabonidus, his father's defeat at the Battle of Opus, uh, maybe he was proclaiming that he was now king and throwing a party to celebrate that he was now uh, the king of Babylon. Or maybe he was observing some regular pagan feast that uh, we're not aware of. But whatever the reason, it sure seems like a foolish thing to do to be throwing a party with the enemy camped outside your gate. But nevertheless, after they are full of wine, uh, Belshazzar orders that all the gold goblets that were in storage that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Israel uh, years ago, <clears throat> he had them brought out so that they could take part in this worship, or this worship service to the pagan gods. And so they all drank toasts to their pagan gods using the goblets that were meant for God's glory uh, in Israel's temple. Now, Nebuchadnezzar held these goblets as trophies of war, apparently, but he never used them. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take those goblets, but God will not be mocked. And so uh, this blasphemy was the last straw of uh, Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Now, scholars suggest that this feast was Belshazzar's way of showing uh, that, you know, even though the enemy was camped outside the gate, our walls will protect us. And I, the great King Belshazzar, I will protect you. Uh, but how foolish, right? How foolish to rely on walls. Uh, Belshazzar defied the wisdom uh, that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had gained, and he relied on his gods and his walls to protect him. And later, uh, Daniel accused Belshazzar of deliberate defiance of the God of Israel. Well, the party had been in full rage, but now it comes to a screeching halt. This thing is over as a hand begins to write on the wall. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to those wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Well, uh, there was an archaeologist by the name of Robert Coldaway uh, who excavated the palace of Babylon in 1899. And he found a room in this palace that was 170 feet by 56 feet with a very large wall that was covered in white gypsum. And he thought that this might be the very room where this handwriting on the wall took place, which would be quite amazing, right? 
so even though uh, the Persian army uh, outside the city walls didn't scare Belshazzar, well, the supernatural hand that wrote on the walls, that terrified him, right, and caused his knees to knock. So uh, just imagine this. A hand starts to write on the wall out of nowhere. The party's over. Of course his knees became weak. Of course his face became pale. It sounds like a horror movie. And Belshazzar calls in all his nobles and it says, if anybody can interpret this for me, I will make you the third person in the kingdom behind his father Nabonidus and himself. And so uh, he calls in these prophets. Now, I don't know about you, uh, and I don't know about Belshazzar, but wouldn't you be sick to death of these prophets and these wise men and these diviners by now? Uh, he continues to call them in. Nebuchadnezzar continued to call them in. These guys know nothing. They, they can't help him at all. None of his prophets can. Uh, so Belshazzar is at a loss of what to do. Uh, but thankfully, uh, the queen mother still lived in the palace, and so uh, Belshazzar uh, consults with her when she hears news of what was going on in the, uh, in the party that was being thrown. So let's look at how uh, Daniel was summoned in verses 10 to 16. Uh, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So... Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I'm sorry, news of the handwriting on the wall reached the queen's ears. And most likely this wasn't Belshazzar's wife because the wives and the concubines were already at the party. Uh, so most scholars say uh, that this was probably the queen mother, the queen mother. So either Nebuchadnezzar's wife, uh, so uh, could have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, but more likely it was Nabonidus's wife, uh, who was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and who was Belshazzar's mother. So Belshazzar's mother uh, comes into the feast, uh, and she probably had firsthand knowledge, memory of uh, Daniel ministering to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, she probably saw the wisdom that Daniel had uh, as, as he uh, uh, interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and, and even uh, may have seen what happened in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a beast of the field. So she may have personally observed uh, Daniel's ministry to Nebuchadnezzar. So she reminds Belshazzar about this Daniel, uh, and she says uh, she called Nebuchadnezzar his father, uh, calls, calls Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father, which probably means his ancestor rather than his biological father, because we think that, that uh, this is, that, or we, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar found Daniel to have wisdom, 
insight, intelligence, beyond all these other wise men who made up his cabinet. Uh, and she says that he has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Now, I find this interesting because you would think that Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, uh, if Nebuchadnezzar had this life-changing salvation experience that we talked about last week, she might have a testimony that says, you know, he knows the one and only true God. So why doesn't uh, the daughter have the same testimony that uh, the father did, right? Well, uh, some of you may be able to tell the same story, right? You're, you're brothers and sisters in Christ and you love the Lord and yet maybe you have a son or, or a daughter who doesn't believe, right? It doesn't necessarily happen that, that your children believe just because you do. And that may be the case here. Maybe his daughter just didn't have ears to hear, uh, but she still recognized Daniel as one who could interpret visions. So she tells Belshazzar to call Daniel to the court for translation. And when Daniel is brought in, Belshazzar promises is the same things that he would have given to his own nobles. You'll be third in the kingdom, you'll get the gold robe, uh, the purple robe, the gold chain, all of those things. Well, Daniel was always respectful of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Whenever he was in his presence, he spoke respectfully to him, but Daniel had no tolerance for Belshazzar. So let's take a look at how Daniel reprimanded Belshazzar for his foolishness in verses 17 to 24. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts to yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those who he wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those who he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal th throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high sovereign God, or most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription." Well, you can imagine Belshazzar's heart beating pretty hard at this point in time, right? By 539 BC, where we are in the story now, Daniel is in his 80s, right? A man full of years, a man full of wisdom. He had lived through six Babylonian kings now. Uh, and after Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562, uh, he had been watching the kingdom of Babylon slowly deteriorate as these other uh, kings tried to follow in Nebuchadnezzar's footsteps. But they were just not made of the same stuff as Nebuchadnezzar, and they couldn't hold it together. It continued to become looser uh, and become uh, harder to hold that kingdom together. And the last of these kings was King Belshazzar, who was a fool in Daniel's eyes. 
Now, sometimes the job of a preacher is to confront people with their foolishness and their sin, right? That's what a preacher has to do sometimes. And, and here's Daniel uh, confronting somebody with the power of life and death over him and tells it to him as straight as he possibly can, even though he risked his life. He says, you are foolish, King Belshazzar. He, he rebuked him because though uh, King Belshazzar had knowledge, that knowledge never became wisdom. And there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Belshazzar knew everything that had happened uh, in the kingdom before, according to verse 22, uh, but a wise man learns from other people's mistakes, and Belshazzar never did that. So here Daniel gives this brief biography of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's life, paying particular attention to Daniel chapter 4 uh, when he was turned into a beast of the field because of his uh, arrogance and pride until he repented and acknowledged the one true God who is ruler over all. And Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson, right? He looked up to the heavens. God restored everything to him. Uh, so once uh, he was a proud and arrogant king, now he praised God. And so God gave it all back to him. And uh, as I said last week, I believe Nebuchadnezzar truly had a saving experience with the God of heaven. And uh, now a couple of generations later, here's Belshazzar, his grandson, who ignores knowledge, ignores wisdom, and look what's about to happen to him. You know, one of the reasons uh, that you and I read the Bible and pray is because we want to gain wisdom, right? That's one of the reasons we do it. Solomon treasured wisdom more than gold or anything else in the whole world. He told his son in the early chapters of Proverbs, you go get this, no matter what it costs you, gain wisdom. And wisdom can help us avoid many of the pitfalls of life. Uh, and so I'm sure you've noticed that, that sometimes people are willing to learn from the wisdom that you have, right? And they'll take your advice. Other times, people need to learn it themselves, right? They don't want to hear your advice. They have to walk right into the same pitfalls that you've warned them against and learn it for themselves. Uh, so uh, wisdom takes a lifetime to gain, but if we're willing to listen to the advice and, and hear uh, about people who have gone before us and the things that they have gone through, we can become a little wiser every single day. And so the lesson here is not to ever let an experience, whether it's your experience or someone else's, go to waste. Uh, there is great value in, in the mistakes that we've made if we're willing to share them. So we need to share our mistakes with our children and with our grandchildren so that they can learn from them and not repeat the same mistakes that we've made. Now, we don't do this oftentimes because we want to hold ourselves up high. We want to look good. We don't want people to know that we've made mistakes, which, of course, is a farce. We've all made mistakes. Why not let other people learn from them? Uh, so we want to we we talk about the mistakes we've made, and especially if there happens to be generational sin in our families, that's something that we ought to raise as well. Uh, hiding that is a huge mistake. Uh, Israel's generational sin was idolatry, right? They continue to, to praise these foreign gods, and that's why God allowed them to be exiled to Babylon in the first place. Uh, Babylon's generational sins were pagan worship and practice, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's family's generational sins were pride and arrogance in, in this amazing city that they had built. Uh, and you know from Exodus chapter 20 that God promised to visit the iniquity of the father on the sons to the third and fourth generation. And this is not necessarily punishment for the son to, to the son for the father's misdeeds, but the truth that the sons naturally repeat the deeds of their fathers unless the curse is broken. So though Exodus 20 is a warning for Israel, uh, we know that the nature of sin, no matter who is committing it, is that it's going to affect future generations until it's broken. 
And Nebuchadnezzar seemingly broke the curse. He seemingly uh, accepted the Lord as Savior. Uh, but somehow his descendants did not have his faith. And so God brought judgment on Babylon for its sins. Now, uh, when we sin, we could blame generational curses for our own sin. But it's not right to do that, right? We are all responsible for our own sin. But the power of generational sin is very strong, isn't it? Sins like racism alcoholism, spousal abuse, child abuse, and the greatest sin of all, rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior, are often passed down from father to son. Fathers do, sons see, and they repeat the actions of their fathers. And so uh, there is only one power in the world strong enough to break generational sin, and he's Jesus Christ. So tell your family, tell your sons, tell your grandsons, tell your grandkids about generational sin in your family, if it exists, and how you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, received the power to break it. And spend time in prayer trying to learn what it is that God wants to teach you in, in the mistakes that you've made, uh, or, or maybe in the mistakes that you're watching somebody else make and how God is disciplining that person. God doesn't waste anything, not suffering, not discipline, not your hardship, nothing. And James says that God gives wisdom liberally to anyone who asks. So gain wisdom. We need to gain wisdom. It's never too late for us to gain wisdom as long as we breathe. Uh, but it was too late for Belshazzar. And Daniel knew it, which was why he told Belshazzar, keep your gifts. Keep your gifts. I don't need them. In a few hours, they weren't going to be his to give away anyway. So let's look how Daniel interprets now the prophecy. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, King of the ba uh, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So, mene means numbered, and it's said twice uh, in this particular passage. Tekel means weighed, parson or paris means divided. So the message literally says numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Uh, so mene is written twice to emphasize that this is God's judgment and it's not going to be reversed. Now, it's possible that these, uh, these uh, wise men and astrologers might have been able to read the words and not be able to interpret what they meant. That's possible. Uh, but Daniel interpreted the meaning, and I imagine that Belshazzar's blood ran cold when he heard God's judgment on him and on the kingdom. You have been found wanting. This very night your kingdom is taken from you. Now, it's obvious that Belshazzar believed Daniel, or else he would not have been afraid, but I'm sure Belshazzar wondered, how? how? How is this possible? Look at these impossible walls that I have. You can't climb these. You can't go through these walls. How could I possibly lose this kingdom? So the Persians, though, had a strategy that Belshazzar had not even considered. Instead of climbing over the walls or trying to knock down the walls, the Persian army diverted the Euphrates River and they were able to make that river run somewhere else until the land was dry. And so they didn't go over the walls and they didn't go through the walls. They went under the walls. And that is a strategy that Belshazzar certainly never considered. So they took the city without a fight. They killed Belshazzar and Darius the Mede became king. 
Babylon fell just as the prophets Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Daniel predicted. Uh, the historians uh, Herodotus and Xenophon both confirm that this is exactly how Babylon was taken without a fight. And the Cyrus Cylinder, which I mentioned early, earlier, which was written shortly after 539 BC, also records that Babylon was taken without battle and that its citizens received Cyrus warmly. So isn't that amazing? Just in one night, in one night, the second phase of the times of the Gentiles, the kingdom of the silver chest and arms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue from Daniel 2 was fulfilled uh, because of Belshazzar's pride and his misplaced reliance in his walls and in his gods. So let's close with a few applications as we consider uh, this amazing story. <clears throat> the first thing I'd like us to consider is that the wise man uh, trusts God only. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots, and some boast in their horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So Napoleon was a fool for trying to take Russia, uh, boasting in the size of his army rather than considering other factors. And Belshazzar was a fool for trusting in his walls. He just didn't figure that there might be another way for his kingdom to be taken. So anything that we trust in, we have to recognize that that thing is temporary, whatever it is, uh, beauty, money, health, houses, physical strength, intelligence, family, all these things can be lost and they all will be lost sooner or later. Some of the people in Florida lost everything they owned this week as a result of this hurricane. And so God, though, even though we might lose everything, God remains forever. And so we would be fools to trust in anything other than God. Anything other than God is simply a house built on sand and not built on rock. So the wise person trusts in God only. Secondly, we should have a humble attitude. This is what Nebuchadnezzar learned that Belshazzar never did. God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before the one true God and God gave him back his kingdom and his glory. And God loves to be generous to his people as long as we acknowledge his right to rule over us. Belshazzar never did that. And in one night, he lost everything. His kingdom was given to others just as Daniel predicted. And so you and I may not have physical kingdoms like a Babylon to rule over, right? But, but we do have a way of making little kingdoms over our, our little lives, right? Uh, we, we can do that. Uh, and we can become comfortable uh, and, and sometimes even secure in material things. And if we're really going far, we might start to boast in these things as though we acquire them for ourselves and as though God didn't give us whatever it is that we have. Uh, and so when we act as though we have earned these things rather than acknowledging that they're gifts from God, God has many ways to discipline us and even take away our little kingdoms that we've built for ourselves if we don't acknowledge his right to rule. So if we're generous and we're humble, uh, God, God honors that. So hold everything loosely. Acknowledge that it's all God's anyway uh, and give back to him liberally. Have a humble attitude. That's, that will enable us to do these things. A third thing is to model Jesus's life. You know, if anyone ever had the right to be proud, it sure wasn't Belshazzar, right? It, it was Jesus. Uh, he's, he's the son of God. He, he comes down from, from heaven. God becomes a man. Uh, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins and is raised from the dead so that he might purchase our salvation. He could have asserted his rights anywhere along the way and stopped the entire process, but Jesus never did that. Uh, he taught 
humility, and wisdom. Uh, he spent three years with his apostles doing that, uh, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And then he, these apostles watched as he, as he voluntarily gives himself into the hands of wicked men and goes to the cross to die for our sins. And these apostles were really slow to get it. They, they couldn't figure out how their Messiah could die. But eventually, after he rose from the dead uh, and they received the Holy Spirit, they, they understood that Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to buy their salvation. And then their whole worldview changed when they finally understood the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. He didn't come to, to conquer Rome and set up a new Jerusalem. He didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because of that, as we model Christ's life, our life is not about accumulating wealth or status or position. It's about receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the only one who can save us from the wrath of God that we so deserve. And then life is about being a humble servant of the Lord, modeling his life by worshiping God and serving others. The, the apostles modeled their lives after his, and we ought to too. So model Jesus' life. And, and if you haven't, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Judgment Day is coming, all right? Judgment Day is coming. It comes for everyone. Napoleon had his Waterloo. Belshazzar had his Babylon. The world boasts in a great many things, but one thing the whole world has in common is that everyone is going to stand before the Lord one day. Our judgment day comes when we stand before the Lord and we give an account of what we have believed and whether we have trusted in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And when we stand before him, he's not going to ask us about the possessions we have accumulated. He's not going to ask about the good deeds we've done. He's going to ask, have you received me as Lord and Savior? It's a simple question with eternal consequences and one that I have to ask you. Have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? I believe that everyone in this room has. If you haven't, I would love to have a conversation with you and let's get that settled today, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the message of Daniel chapter five. Uh, Lord, uh, help us not to be foolish and, and put our faith in things that can never save, Lord. Help us to put our faith in you and you alone, Lord, the only one who could ever save us from the power of our sins. Lord, uh, we trust you, we love you, we thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, and we give you all honor and glory today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.